Welcome. If you're guests here with us, we hope you feel blessed and I hope you feel encouraged as you've joined in musical worship with us. If you have little ones at this time, they can be in Sunday school if you'd like them to be. Just uh, follow the teachers out to the foyer. The rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As we begin a new chapter, it's a, always a joy to start out fresh in a new spot. If it's the first time you're with us today, don't worry, as we've gone verse by verse through these two books, that you're not going to be lost. We're going to open up the Word of God and study it verse by verse, and you'll have exactly what the Lord wants you to take away. God's plan for a healthy church, that's the title of these two studies. Spiritual warfare, particularly as we moved into chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, marking true and false. Paul has been addressing false teachers and falseness in the church and that is impacting the church. And so these passages then will concern all of that. I'd like you to turn in your copy of God's Word, if you would. We're going to read, as is our habit, when we start a new chapter, we're going to read that chapter. Uh, the Word of God is clear and starts to work, and it's powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides the soul and spirit and joint and marrow. And so we know that that's how that works. So we're going to start reading, so you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. I'll give you some verse cues. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. And you can just stay together with us. Starting at verse 1, it says, I wish, I wish that you would bear with me a little in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. Verse 3. But I'm afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully, verse 5. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I'm not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we've made this evident to you in all things, verse 7. Or did I commit a sin? In humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Verse 11, why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. Verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, Verse 14, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Verse 16, again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I may also boast a little. Verse 17, what am I saying? I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I'll boast also, verse 19, for you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am also just as bold myself. Verse 2, 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, oft in danger of death. 24. Five times I've received the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Verse 26. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers from among false brethren. Verse 27, I've been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, oft without food and cold and exposure. 
Verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Verse 32, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in the basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hand. Stop right there. All the way back to the beginning of the chapter 10, uh, this topic has been spiritual warfare, and here obviously dealing with false teachers in difficult times. Uh, the, the church has received some teachers as of late in the church which have taught differently than Apostle Paul has, and no doubt a question has come to the Apostle Paul, how can we tell the difference? How do we know what they're saying is wrong and what you're saying is right? That's really the issue. How do we know what's true? How do we know what's false? And, and we have noted as we worked our way through chapter 10 that there are some character traits of the Apostle Paul that clearly help us identify what we should be looking for if we're looking for someone that we can believe. And then, of course, the antithesis of those kinds of things are, are the character traits of those who are false teachers. And so we spent some time doing that and kind of marked the passage through with handholds, so that helps us to understand the verse-by-verse -verse way through that. And we ended our time together about two weeks ago with one of the most important ways to determine and mark a true or a false teacher. And that was from 2 Timothy 2.15, and here's where we finished up. And this is Paul talking to his son in the faith, Timothy, who is pastoring in Ephesus, and he says to him this, he says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And that word be diligent is important. It's aorist active imperative, spadadzo. It just means to work hard. It means to be thorough, be attentive, be meticulous. To what? Well, he answers that question. Be attentive, be thorough, be work hard, be meticulous in handling the word of truth. And, and this is really opposite, and I don't think I need to tell you this, of what we see anymore that passes itself off as biblical teaching. It's not a verse-by-verse -verse type of teaching. It's really what, whatever the guy who's standing in the pulpit wants to say, and then he uses some proof texts from the Bible along the way to kind of help his case. That's not what we're talking about here. Be diligent. We have to actually set down and make sure that we understand what the Word of God says. And as we think about false teachers in relation to that passage, the church really faces a great challenge. It's not any different, I think, than the challenge that was in the first century, but maybe perhaps more prevalent. It's always had the challenge that it has to sort out true preachers from the false. And that's nothing new, but it's crucial to be able to do that. And, and we must do this, because if we don't do it, then falsehood takes over the church and takes over our own lives. And as I mentioned last time, where, where our educational institutes, uh, institutions around the nation who were once Christian, Literally all across America, you have churches, Christian schools, and seminaries, and you can look at those schools, many of them not Christian in name anymore. They all started out with this tremendous conviction and a passion for Christ and, and a commitment to godliness and the Great Commission, a commitment to the Word of God and what it says. They all started that way, and then they've been literally taken over by an infiltration of these kinds of people that Paul is speaking about here. And you have to look hard at some point in the future, once that happens, to find godliness you have to look hard to find a biblical worldview, to find someone who actually takes the Word of God, what it says, what it means by what it says, and how does that apply. You've got people teaching, teaching New Testament classes and will say, I know this is what we read here, but you've got to be careful in teaching this because there are people who don't hold to that position. As if somehow that's a surprise to anyone that people don't hold to sound doctrine. But they use that as a reason why they don't teach sound doctrine and won't even teach the doctrinal statement of the school they claim to represent in their teaching as the truth. And so those people have been let in in the name of academia, in the name of diversity, in the name of ecumenicism, and, and they're not building with the right things. They're not accurately handling the word of truth. And they look around and everything looks great on the outside if somehow the Lord's looking on the outside and somehow thinks that it must be wonderful because it looks so fantastic. And he's not measuring what's on the inside. And they're not building with the right things, and, and they take credit for what went on before, but really they're just wrecking what God wants to do. They take the institution away from the sound doctrine and over into a place of falseness. And that's the way it is everywhere anymore. It was certainly the way it, it was happening in Corinth, which is why Paul 
does this. And, and if you don't do battle with this, then it just takes over. And, of course, chapter 10 had to deal with handling the word of truth. It has to deal with the word of truth as a sword and throwing down high towers and everything raised up against the knowledge of Christ. So this, this dovetails perfectly into that uh, chapter 10, which we just looked at. And it shouldn't be do, too difficult, I don't think, to recognize false teachers by their error, by their worldliness, by their materialism, by their fleshly lust, their pride, their div divisiveness, their assault on the truth. And just so you can measure perhaps how, perhaps this maybe has infiltrated your own thoughts, and this is just for your own good, just think about what I'm about to say and see if this has permeated your own thinking. Current conventional church wisdom says that all views are equal if people are sincere, right? I mean, I don't th you don't have to look very far for that. People will say, well, that's not what we believe, but that's what you believe, in. and so it's given validity, equal validity, because they hold it in sincerity. That's typical church, uh, church wisdom, I think. That's in the church today. And so then if you're the kind of person who says, uh, you know, you don't buy that, and, and you believe 2 Timothy 2.15 means that there's only one meaning in a passage, which is actually what it does mean, then, and you want to sort out what's really true, then you're considered divisive. You're just making people uncomfortable. And you know what that means? Well, what that means is there's no such thing as false teaching. If every belief that somebody holds is valid, no matter what it is, then there's never any false teaching, right? Because it has to be valid because you hold it in sincerity. And so the old-time heretic, you know, uh, in the church of old, they held this, uh, this position that wasn't right, and everybody could see it, and then they addressed it, and, you know, Montanists, and all, you know, all through church history, people came with a different teaching, and it was wrong, and they held it in sincerity, but it was still wrong. But that's not the case anymore, see? In the modern church, it's just as excessive and just as bad to consider all truth valid as it is to identify, not identify one truth as bad. You know, if you say all truth is just the same, that's just as bad as somebody coming up with false doctrine. So that's the difficulty then for someone who wants to discuss heresy because there isn't any by that definition. And beloved, that in a nutshell is progressive Christianity, which is all through the country right now and in Lynchburg. And I would propose to you that that isn't Christianity at all. Redefining and not being able to clearly say the Bible says this certain thing and this is how we're supposed to live that's heresy. But if you say that's heresy, you're just divisive, see. And it's in the church with all its tolerance and its openness to suggestions that the Bible, and here it is, couldn't really mean what the plain meaning appears to be saying. That's made the church vulnerable, hasn't it? If you can't understand the Bible and its clear meaning, we're in trouble because nothing is safe. And we think we've reached this pinnacle, but really we've just eradicated heresy because we reclassified it as optional and so the whole thing is flipped, and you're only classified as a heretic now for offenses against inclusivism. So if you won't include everything that's included in the church now, then you're the one who's offensive, and you're the one who's a heretic. So after centuries of struggle with the truth and trying to keep the church in the center of that stream of sound doctrine, heresy has finally been banished from the church. But it's not a victory. It's a huge defeat to the church. And that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. See, he's dealing with this. He doesn't want the church in court to get to that point where there's just huge defeat and they're vulnerable because they're just accepting whatever comes down. So he's giving them a ways to identify what a true teacher looks like and what a false teacher looks like. And we've looked at a lot of that kind of stuff. And that the whole point of these last four chapters we've been, we're going to be talking about is it, there are false teachers, and beloved, if we can't recognize them, and, and certainly that can be difficult, right, because we saw in our passage in verse 13, such men are false teachers, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So they look the part, and many of the ministers in pulpits around the country and here in Lynchburg will look the part. And then he says, but it's no wonder they look the part, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants, who are those? Well, the people who are telling falseness are the ones that come from the father of lies. Those are the, false, those are the false teachers. His servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So they're all false teachers, and they teach what is false. And I know that's not hard to connect, but we have to say it, right? Because if every, if every belief is equal, then that's very hard to say. False teachers teach what is false. It's not optional. It's not another belief system, so we can't teach what's sound doctrine because, you know, they hold sincerity. So if we can't recognize them in the church, we can't recognize false teaching, then we can't discern the truth. And conventional 
current evangelical wisdom is that all views are equal value if people are personally attached to them. But that's the devil's lie, see? And it's the folly of believing that kind of thing that's been the destruction of churches in centuries past and institutions. But it's not popular to sort out true and false. And it's not easy. And you've got to sit down and make sure you're diligent to know what the truth is. But it is right and it's necessary. And this is why Paul's carried along to pin this section of the letter. And, and as we said, by these passages, we can recognize false messengers and true messengers. And some of those that we've looked at so far uh, in, in uh, chapter 11, if, have been, or chapter 10 rather, is that you can recognize true teachers. And we've seen this, the, the outcome of life. As you look at, at the teacher, what is the outcome of the life? I mean, how is he managing his own life? I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is pretty clear on what the characteristics of his life have to look like. So does it look like that? And you have to do some work and find out. And his impact on the church will be sanctification. You know, nowhere in the scripture does it say the church is going to be a mile wide and an inch deep. But you would know that if you checked out books on church growth. Because all church growth deals with is how to get bigger church. But the Bible doesn't teach about how to get a bigger church. It talks about how to get a deeper church. Sanctification, the approach in looking more like Christ over time. And you can only do that if you discern the word and work your way through it. And even and going verse by verse, which means you don't get to cherry pick the fun ones and overlook the ones that are difficult. You just have to work through all of them. And by such, we grow. And so sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. See? So the outcome in the church will be sanctification, be an obvious care for the people. And he won't care about worldly methods or worldly approval. And that was the Apostle Paul. He didn't care about being recognized. He didn't care about whether or not he measured up to a standard they had developed, measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves as we saw in chapter 10, verse 12. He didn't care about that. And they're not cared about worldly methods, worldly approval. It's not flashy. It's not cool. You know, now it's, it's cool stage. It's a cool, cool dress, cool band, right lighting, got the right feel. That has nothing to do with anything that has to do with sanctification. Okay, so he's not, he's not worried about worldly approval. And a consistent lifestyle. It's another one we saw. However you live here at the church, that's how you're living out in the world, see. And they're not showmen. And, and they're not going to throw their egos around. And they refuse to talk about themselves. And they don't want to see their name in lights. And that's the opposite of most uh, of the false teachers now. They want to see their name in lights. They want to be as big as they can possibly be and get their name on as many books as they can get their name on and, and endorse as many books and get books endorsed for them. So they just look good, see. And, and true teachers are going to compare themselves with the example of Jesus. And when they do that, they know they don't measure up, ever. So anything good that happens is going to be because Jesus did it, not because you did it. And they're going to be humble, and they're going to be willing to work inside the sphere that God has given to them and no more. And that was the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? I mean, his impact has certainly been much greater after his death over the course of the life of the church than it ever was while he was alive. He was scorned and rejected and, and abused, always called into question, always, you know, we don't want you, Paul, you're, you're pathetic. Paul didn't care. Just worked in the sphere that God had given him. Go to a certain town, lead some people to Christ, plant a church, let it grow, move on. That was his sphere. He was perfectly fine. That he never made any radar of anybody of importance. Constantly concerned that the credit goes to the Lord. We saw that in the very last one. We saw consumed with being found approved to Jesus alone. You know, you live your life so that you'll be approved by Jesus. That, that's a great way to kind of pattern your life. You're going to live your life in such a way that Jesus approves of it. Not whether or not somebody else thinks you're great. Not whether or not somebody recognizes you for all the, the ability you have. Does Jesus recognize your life is approved? And it's, that's not hard to figure out, is it? We obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, and that's how we express our love to him. You obey his commands. Now, when we think about the church, Corinth should have been able to tell the difference between true and false teachers. And, and if you missed any of that, we just got through saying you can go on Spotify and, and go to the Berean Journey podcast, and you can catch all the messages that led up to that, okay, that gave you the support, and that can help you if you need it. But these are, church should have been able to say the difference. Paul was there 18 months. He's been back and forth. He's written a number of letters. They should have been able to show it. And, you know, so I say this. They weren't able to. And so I say this in, in, rea in the reality of it, of it is if the church pastored by the Apostle Paul had a hard time marking true and false teachers, then... I'm pretty sure that a modern church led by elders that are far inferior to Paul, like myself, are certainly going to have a hard time to do it as well. If the church pastor by Paul couldn't do it, then the church pastor by people who are not anywhere near Paul's level are going to have a hard time. So these chapters are going to seem to go over certain points again and again. 
That's not surprising to us. If the church in Corinth needed it repeated multiple times, then we do too. So bear with that, realizing this is the Holy Spirit carrying Paul along. And so we have to keep looking to then what we see here to give us direction and discernment so that the work of God that he wants to do here isn't derailed or destroyed and we're not deceived by foolish teachers and carried away by every wind of doctrine, which Ephesians 4 tells us is just childishness. So I will, and I hope that you will, study to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, let's look at our first four verses again in our new chapter, and we're going to break them down as, as much time as we have. So look at verse 1, if you would. No slides, so I want you to look down there with me if, and, and just look at it in your copy. Second, Second Corinthians 11, 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Verse 3, but I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray for the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So why is this a concern? Well, look at verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we've not preached, so the way to understand Jesus, which is very common in progressive churches and false churches, how we should look at Jesus and what he would have thought was important, and or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received. So the work of the Holy Spirit and how he works in the life of the believer, that's different from what Paul taught. Or you have received a different gospel, which you have not accepted. Again, the way the gospel is presented nowadays is not the gospel. It's the benefits of salvation. And then we say, wouldn't you like to have that? As if somehow that's the gospel, instead of saying you have to lose your life to find it. Right? So... The idea there is there's three things there that they come and they're taught differently, still taught differently now. And then look at what it says about them. If that happens, you bear this what? Beautifully. You bear it. In other words, you're accepting these kinds of things. So this is the reason why Paul's focusing on it. And what we'll see here are three more ways to mark a faithful teacher or a faithful ministry and some things inside of that, I think, that help us understand that context. But verse 1 is basically an introductory verse. Look back at verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. So Paul is going to continue in this same vein. And, and the foolishness is that he's going to continue to have to point out his efforts on their part and his qualifications. Paul calls that foolishness. He hates to do it. And he says, indeed, you are bearing with me. In other words, I'm going to continue again doing what I did before. I'm just going to have to tell you about my qualifications so that you can accept what I say is true and then thereby rejecting false teachers and what they're teaching. And, and in this process, we're going to see what goes on behind the scenes. In fact, we wouldn't know about Paul's difficulty as he traveled the roads and difficulty in the wilderness and all those kinds of things if he hadn't exercised some of this foolishness and had to boast a little bit about some of his background. So we wouldn't know any of that, but we do because the Holy Spirit carried him along to do it. But whenever he draws attention to this kind of stuff, he just calls it foolishness, or he says, I speak as if insane, or he says, I'm not speaking as the Lord would, but in boasting. In other words, that's not what the Lord wants a godly man to do, but I'm going to do this, Paul says, because that's what these guys are doing. And, and he knows, and, and we saw that every true minister knows, that he never measures up to the standard which is Christ. So there'd be no point in him boasting. And anything that he, ha he does is, is in regard to Jesus. He's done it. So it's foolish to boast. But, but the church has been captivated by the cool and the hip and the flashy. See, and those are the modern terms for things that don't have any power. And so they've been captured by all this. And, then, and the Corinthian church have been captured by basically the same thing. But they've established this. They compare themselves with themselves. And, and Paul says they've established this standard by which every me, me, uh, minister needs to be measured. And Paul says, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about this self-imposed standard about what you're supposed to look like. So he has to point out what's going on and what should be going on. And so he's forced to do what he resents doing. And, and just as a footnote, I don't think any, any true minister or ministry leader finds any particular joy in self-defense and self-promotion. No one does. You do, really don't want to go around building yourself up while others are tearing you down. You don't want to get caught up in some little ego battle, some comparison, making yourself better than other people. But, but beloved, there's a real unease here, and I can confess this to you in my own life over the years in the church. There's a real unease here between how I do, don't want to engage in self-promotion and, and at the same time defend my position as a teacher of truth so that people aren't led astray. You follow? I mean, this is a legitimate struggle. You, 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 you want to chase down a false narrative or speculations or gossip, or in this case a false teacher, and you want to 
make it clearer. And so you've got this uneasy balance between pointing out why what you're saying is true and why what they're doing or saying is false. See, that's very uneasy. So Paul's in a very uneasy balance here between not wanting to do that kind of thing because that's what false teachers do, kind of promoting themselves all the time, and establish a clear narrative that this is the truth and I'm going to back it up by the life and my understanding of the Word of God. So I think you can see that. That's a legitimate struggle. So Paul says, verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. And then there's some reasons. First, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And here we have our next mark of a faithful teacher. If, you have, if you're a note taker, you can find it on the back of your bulletin. And this is the 11th mark, and I'm not going to burden you with all of that. It's since we started, that's really the 11th mark we pulled out of these passages, that uh, what a faithful teacher looks like. And here's what a faithful teacher looks like. He's always worried about those under his care and their relationship to the Lord. That just seems obvious enough, doesn't it? But that isn't really define uh, false teachers most of the time. They're not really too concerned about those under their care. They're concerned about whether or not they look good and whether or not the church does right so that they look like they know what they're doing. It's this backwards way of patting yourself on the back. We know that it mattered little to Paul what individuals say by way of self-recommendation or what judgments others make about themselves or about him. And this, of course, looking back on those who compare themselves with themselves. But all that matters, then, is really the commendation which the Lord himself gives. So what Paul's indicating here is this. It's not me that I'm worried about. It's you that I'm worried about. Paul says, I'm not concerned about my Christian experience. I'm not concerned about my relationship to the Lord. That's like it should be. I'm concerned about you. I'm not concerned whether or not I'm made to look good with you doing good or I'm made to look bad because you do bad. I'm not concerned about either of those things. What I'm concerned about is this. It's your testimony, your relationship with God, your Christian experience. And I'm grieved, here it is, I'm grieved that you might get seduced away from the truth. And that you're going to wind up with error and iniquity in your own life, and it's just going to be in shambles. Because that's what happens when every belief is equal. So Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Literally, the jealousy of God. So he's saying, I'm jealous for God. And, and that's what happens when there's no heresy and all views are equal if people are sincere because, beloved, God doesn't have that opinion, okay? God doesn't think every belief is sincere because somebody holds it in sincerity. He doesn't think that. So this is a righteous indignation on Paul's part. This is a righteous longing for God's vindication. So, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but this is a major theme throughout all the Old Testament. This is not hidden here just with Paul. If you just start at the Ten Commandments, you can see it, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. He says this. Now, mark it. He's, uh, the Lord is giving his top 10, okay? I, as I say all the time, he could have had a top 100, and they would have still been just as valid, but he boiled it down and gave us a top 10. These things you're supposed to do, these things you're not supposed to do. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. So there's not to be anybody else you're going to worship. And that makes sense because he's the only God there is, but it, he has to actually say it. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what's in heaven above or what's on earth beneath or in the water under the earth, verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting end to that passage. It just means that when you worship something besides God or you replace his authority with some other authority, what are you really saying? That you hate him. And, and that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because every time we sin, it's as if we do it, if you will, right in his presence. You know, when people pray, God be with us, that's really a misnomer, right? You shouldn't pray, God be with us, because God says, I will never leave you or forsake. I get what you're saying, make your presence felt to us, but he's already there, so don't pray, God be with us. God's already there. His Holy Spirit will never leave you. It is part of who you are and the new you inhabiting inside your own heart. Jesus said, if you're with at least one other He's already there. So then, mark this, when you sin willfully, what are you doing? You're just doing it as if it were right before the throne of God. And that's basically saying, I hate you, right? Because if you have a child and you teach him how to do something, and you teach him what you want him to do, and then he comes right up in front of you and does the exact opposite, does he love you? No, of course he doesn't. He despises you, and he shows it by his action. It's precisely the same way here. So this is a very clear passage and very difficult, I think, to swallow for the Jewish people and everyone else. So when you say that you shall worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, then you, here, ask this question. Is he okay with sharing his glory? No. Is he okay with sharing his authority? 
Uh, no. Is he okay with sharing worship? No. Is he okay with sharing his position? No. Is he okay with sharing his allegiances? No. Is he okay with, sh- with, with um, sharing his instructions with someone else and letting them pervert them? No. No to all of that, see? Why? Because he's jealous of those things. They belong to him. And what he says is final. He's not okay with, you know, you can believe that if you want to because you're sincere. No, what I've told you is what I've told you. And so our job then is to find out what that is and make sure we don't do it if he says not to do it. And to accept a substitute then, just very clearly, is to be disloyal to the God that is, the only God that is. And that's equated with hating him. And he's not okay with that. And Deuteronomy 4.24, again, a perfect example. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. What is he? He is a jealous God. He's not going to share his glory with anybody. He's not going to share worship. He's not going to share authority. And that same thing's repeated, of course, in Deuteronomy 5.9, 6.15, so we won't read those. But in Deuteronomy 32, again, a good illustration, verse 16. So as he's speaking about his people, he says this, They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. So he already said not to do that, right, and to obey him. And they've got strange gods. They're, they're doing things they shouldn't be doing. And they sacrificed to demons who were not God. And, and that's really what happens, beloved. You know, when you disobey God, you're really serving demons because all the false doctrine comes as a matter of, from the demons. So the scripture just says in Solomon here very clearly, if you worship something else, if you obey something besides God, you're disobeying the falseness of demons. So it just calls it out. They sacrificed to demons. who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. In other words, there was no dread of this God on them. They didn't learn to fear this God. This is just new, new places to, to go away. Remember, Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as you don't believe the singular truth. You can believe anything else. He's not, he's not partial to one truth or another. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. It's gr- that's fantastic imagery, and we're going to see it again in just a minute. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. So he turned his back on them because they provoked him. And that, that's not hard to figure out, right? When we willfully sin over and over again, that's provoking to the Lord. And then he said, I will hide my face from them. I'll see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation, sons of whom there is no faithfulness. That's a terrible thing to have to say about your own people, isn't it? Sons of whom there is no faithfulness. I'm sure the Lord looks at some modern churches today and says the same thing. Jesus says that. And verse 21, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They provoke me to anger with their idols. So I'll make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And that's a precursor, of course, to the Gentiles who got the gospel and provoked the Jews to jealousy because the gospel came to them. Jews were supposed to give it to the, give it to the world. They didn't. Instead, they perverted it and did what the world did. So the Lord says, okay, I'll, I'll try something else. I'll use the church. And so that's, that's a... a, a uh, kind of looking forward. How about Isaiah 42, 8? I'm the Lord, that's my name. It's the only God there is. There's no other. He's over everything. I'll not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I'm not going to share them. Why? Because I'm the only God there is. I made you, I begot you, you, you owe me obedience. And so this is precisely what Paul was feeling. The pain of God's jealousy. And this is the motivation behind a faithful teacher and a faithful ministry. And it's illustrated, I think, perfectly behind, uh, by David in Psalm 69.9. Listen to what he says. David says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So that's a really great statement. Uh, what, he, what he means was, is this. My passion for the worship of the true God in the true way is eating me up. Why? Because people aren't doing it. I understand what God expects, and I look around, he says, in your house, and people aren't doing what you expect, and that's tearing me up. They're perverting it. They're polluting it. They're corrupting it. They're not obeying, and he's saying, I'm so passionate that you would be rightly worshiped and honored that that's eating me up, Lord, and then he further defines that feeling. He says, and the reproaches that fall on you have fallen on me. In other words, when you're dishonored, I feel the pain, and can I say that, beloved? Do you feel that? You know, in this culture, obviously, becoming hostile to Christians, are you just mad because the culture's hostile to Christians, and now you can't do what you used to do, and people, or are you, are you eaten up because the reproaches are actually on God? Isn't that what they're rejecting? They're not rejecting you, are they? I mean, they are, by default, because your connection to whom? To Jesus. So when the reproach falls, does that, does that tear you up because people aren't obeying, and that's going to be their destruction and their sorrow? See? 
And that's, a, that's an important barometer, I think, as we think about uh, the changing culture. And if you, if you look at Psalm 69.9, you know, there, this is a person who has a real intimate relationship with the living God. And, and when you feel the pain of God's dishonor, then you know what Psalm 69.9 means. And we're going to see this again, so we won't dwell on this next illustration because we're going to see it in just a couple weeks. But verse 28 of this chapter, Paul says, apart from such external things, so all the difficulty that comes uh, through traveling across, uh, you know, a first century world and the dangers of brigands and, and all the kind of stuff that goes on. There's this daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, verse 29, who's weak without my being weak and who's led into sin without my intense concern? In other words, if someone is weak in the church, Paul says, that weakens me. I feel sad. I'm broken up about it. And then he says, and who gets led into sin without my intense concern? And so the idea there is, there was this care of the churches. I mean, he was caught up in whatever dishonored God in the life of someone else. And, if, and we understand this verse in light of the verse we're currently looking at. The intense care of the church was a feeling that God was being dishonored, and it was pain to Paul. See, Paul was deeply concerned about their testimony, their relationship with God, their Christian experience, and that they were missing out on what God had intended and the good that God had for them, and so he was burdened about that. And so that the church had compromised their testimony and their loyalty and being obedient. He was torn up about it because God is so worthy of loyal, loving obedience. He deserves to be loved with what, beloved? With all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. So he's, he's torn up about that. And beloved, can I say that this is the most serious issue of life for the unredeemed and the redeemed. For the unredeemed, beloved, the fact that they don't honor God, that neither do they thank him, will be some of the ways that the Lord will bring wrath down on them. Because everyone has to submit if you submit in this life, you receive from the Lord his grace of salvation. If you wait and you didn't honor him, you didn't thank him, then you receive eternal hell. And th there's, no, there's no way to get out of that. See? And so on the one hand, that's the seriousness of life, that you're, you're not honoring the Lord, you're not uh, concerned with thanking him or, or being obedient to him as an unredeemed person, obviously. But it's the most, I think, the most serious issue of life for believers because you're treating God with such a cavalier attitude it's like the false teachers what he says is not really what he meant I mean really we have to really be more progressive than that and we have to mean some other things to get everybody in see so when you know progressives reinterpret and here's what they do what we've known to be absolutes as unknowable which is precisely what they say we can't possibly know that that's what God meant or they teach the opposite of what God intended he likely looks at them like he looked at Jeremiah uh, 23, uh, 21. Remember what he said here? He says, he's, he's talking to the false, Jeremiah had false teachers during his time too. They were saying the opposite of what Jeremiah was saying. And God says about them to encourage Jeremiah, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. That's the idea of a messenger. A messenger is one who goes forth. Uh, um, God says, they went forth, but I didn't send them. They ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. They didn't have my words. They had whose words? Their own. But if they had stood in my counsel, here's the other side, mark it, then they would have announced my words to my people and they would have turned back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. The, the upside would have been had they stood in my presence, and we, the equivalent of that for us is to know what the word of God says, right? Because he's exalted and equal to his own name, that we under, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly with all wisdom, is the way we understand what God says. So if they'd stood in my counsel, they would have turned away from their wickedness and their, and their evil deeds. But that's not what happened, right? The outcome would have been edification, but that wasn't the outcome because they didn't stand in my counsel, and I didn't send them, but you listened to them, and so you were destroyed on as well as they. But Paul's a faithful and true teacher, and he's concerned with the things that God's concerned about. And then here's the next mark of a faithful, true teacher. Back to our passage, verse 2. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And, and if, uh, of the passage here, this, I love this one the most just because we can connect to this very well. And, and this is the next mark of a faithful teacher. It's the 12th, if you're keeping track. His ministry is done with a future marriage in mind. A faithful teacher's ministry is done with a future marriage in mind. In other words, Paul says, I didn't pledge you to be mine, to be like me, or to please me. It, it doesn't have anything to do with me. My job is to present you to the bridegroom. And everything about his ministry is with a future date 
in mind. Everything about Paul's ministry, everything about a faithful minister is with this future date in mind. And everything about that is beautiful imagery. And, and the reason why it is is because we can relate to this a little bit. We still have remnants of this in our own, in our own ceremony. We have a courtship. That's not mentioned here, but we have a courtship. That, that's, in other words, that's not dating uh, to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, which is why I strongly discourage parents from allowing their children to date before they're adults. Why? Well, because that almost inevitably leads to immorality. And Dobson has a number of resources that can help you understand that. The earlier that you date, and he has the numbers of ages, the earlier that you date, the more likely you're going to fall into immorality before you're married. So this whole idea of having a boyfriend or girlfriend consumes the young person. They don't understand the balance of all of that. They don't understand what the purpose of getting to know someone from the opposite sex is. It just consumes them. You can always tell when they're too young to be uh, dating because everything about their posting is all about somebody, right? So there's this this idea of this uh, courtship's out the window. We're just kind of doing the whole dating thing so we can be with somebody. But courtship is an intentional time to move forward towards engagement where the question is, is this the person God has for me to marry? And that's at that point, you should be you know, discovering those things, and it's a great thing. So that's not included in this imagery, but it's important, I think, and that's a message for another time, but important for us to understand. And then we get to, we get to Paul's statement, and we have this engagement. So you go through this courtship, and this is the person you believe God has for you, and you have an engagement. And, and this lines up with Paul's statement. Pledging to one another, a commitment to purity, a commitment to faithfulness. And everything is looking forward to that ceremony, right? And, and, and the purity and the preparation and the learning how to serve one another and all of that. And, and when the bride comes down the aisle, who brings her, typically? Her dad does. That's traditional, right? I mean, it doesn't always have to be that. But typically, her father does because that was the father's responsibility to, to uh, the leader, the protector of his daughter until marriage. And, and that isn't a perfect illustration, of course, in, in our current, the way we do it. But I think it's helpful. It falls short, but it's helpful for us to see this. So it appears the intent that Paul here is, so when I came to Corinth and I brought you the gospel, I betrothed you to Christ. I think you can see that. And, and you pledged your loyalty and your faithfulness to Jesus. And you pledged your obedience and you pledged your purity to Jesus. And, and now he said, you've made this binding contract. It's a saving commitment. And the marriage hasn't happened yet. It's in the future. You haven't been received into the bridegroom's home. That hasn't happened yet. But my job, Paul says, is to keep you pure until that event, you see? So I think that's the idea. And his exact intentional meaning, we can pull from 1 Corinthians 4.15, because the Bible explains the Bible. Paul says this about himself, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, in other words, there'll be many people who are going to help you along the way. They're going to help teach you. They're going to bring you, perhaps, uh, into sanctification. If it's a false tutor, obviously not. But good tutors are going to help you grow, and there'll be plenty of influence. Yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, what did he say about himself? I became your father through the gospel. So how does Paul look at himself? The picture here is Paul views his ministry in some respects as the father of the bride in Corinth. And that's a cool imagery, isn't it? And that helps us understand what a faithful teacher looks like. Corinth was engaged to Jesus, and Paul introduced him. You have only one father in the Lord, and that's me, Paul says. I was your spiritual father. He's the one who really gave them life through the gospel. I betrothed you, uh, not as a father who actually brought his daughter to life, but, uh, you know, in the world, but certainly he gives her away to her husband, and the husband is Jesus. Paul says, I give you to Christ. I was the father who gave you to Christ, and, and he says, I betrothed you to one husband. And so he sees his job, and mark it, every faithful pastor and leader is one who sees his job in some ways as wanting to get the bride of Christ to his presence in purity. And beloved, I don't have to say this, but false teachers are not like that. And we've seen that ugly reality all too frequently. Not only is the church not pure, they want to have every possible lifestyle choice and favorite sin represented in the church in all of its appalling awfulness. They're bringing, they're bringing people in and, and into leadership that represent lifestyles that the Lord has rejected. And they exalt in that. And they have days that honor immoral lifestyles so that somehow they can be progressive and cool and hip and modern. They haven't helped the church, right? Like I told you about Ze Rabbi Zacharias not too long ago. You know, he had this whole other life. 
Was he helping the church become a pure bride? No, most definitely not. And when everything came out about what he was doing, did that help the church grow? No. Did it make it more pure? No. What did it do? It just it encouraged those who were already on the verge of being interested in doing some of that just to go off that way, and everybody else is super discouraged. Can I believe anything that this guy said up until now? And those are hard things to hear, beloved, but that should have been heard way before. And, and the whole lifestyle choice that he, he chose to keep himself separated from everybody, and there was no there was no checks and balances. Nobody could see if the life he was living apart from the church was the same one he was living in the church. That led to that destruction, see? But we don't want to repeat that, do we? So listen, it, you don't want every pot. The church is open for sinners, right? We, we want people to come. We're not condemning you because you're in sin, because such were some of us, right? Some of us represented almost every possible sin imaginable. And then we came to faith, and we were sanctified and justified, Right? We're not like that anymore. So I'm not saying we, we reject everybody who isn't already a believer. No, the gospel goes out and everybody hears it and they can be changed. What I'm saying is we don't promote impurity in the church. We promote purity in the church. And so the faithful leader, the one who can be trusted, is the one who labors for that future ceremony, preparing them for entering into the permanent, intimate union with Jesus, which is what all marriages are supposed to reflect. This wonderful uh, Union, this pure, pure union between two people just reflects this relationship of Christ and his church. Waiting to go to the house of the bridegroom, the house he's gone to prepare for us, according to John 14, 3. If you understand the imagery, then this makes perfect sense. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I, I, will, if I go, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you can also be. And the faithful minister is going to say, much like John did in John 3.29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. In other words, listen, I'm not the, I'm not the bridegroom, John says. I, I'm the friend. I'm helping everything go like it's supposed to go. And, but now the bridegroom's going to come and my joy is complete. Because I did what I was supposed to do and now here he is. And someday that complete fulfillment is going to occur with what every human marriage was supposed to model, and it's going to take place at the rapture of the church. And he's going to gather the bride, and he's going to take them to the place he's prepared, and we have a marriage supper of the... And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you look at that imagery like we're supposed to, then Christ coming and catching away the church, that's his bride. That makes sense, doesn't it? He's coming back because he said he went to prepare a place, and now he's done. And now the church is done, and that's the bride, and she's pure, and she's coming. And now they're going to have a marriage supper of the Lamb, and that just makes all kinds of sense to us. Paul's concern until then, though, is the church be what? Pure. That's why he says, and we'll end with this, and pick up here next time. He says, verse 3, but I'm afraid that... As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. See, I'm afraid you're going to get lured away. Whom? By whom? Well, false teachers, right? False doctrine. Every belief is legitimate as long as somebody sincerely holds it. That's spiritual warfare. And, you know, humanly speaking, if we go back to our illustration, that's, that's a tragedy, isn't it? I mean, it happens. You know, a couple's waiting for the time of their marriage. They've gone through courtship. They're engaged, right? And they're looking forward to that time of marriage. And then someone else comes into the picture and messes the whole thing up. And we all know that's happened, right? We've watched that happen in people's lives and the devastation that's connected with all of that. And as heartbreaking as that is, that's just a faint illustration of how God looks at the unfaithfulness of the bride of Christ. See, that's the same kind of feeling, beloved. I don't, don't, don't misunderstand. The type of feelings that are connected to the correct relationship with a man or a woman that you plan to marry, those feelings are the ones God wants you to feel because those are precisely the kind of words he uses as he describes an unfaithful or a faithful church. So those feelings are the same. You didn't get them out of a vacuum, see? And so this is important stuff. Paul says, my job is to get you to the end and I don't want you to be vulnerable, see, like, like much of the modern church is with every belief that has merit if you hold it sincerely. I, I don't want you to be that way, see. I'm going to present you impurity because this, I'm going to give you the truth. Loyalty to Christ is the issue. And I want to bring you into Christ's presence as a pure bride. And we're going to see Paul's worries weren't unfounded next time. And we saw that in verse 4. We didn't get to it today. but So loyalty is the issue. And, and this is a beautiful thing to think about. You know, e, 
even in the human realm of faithfulness and purity before marriage and the model of Christ in the church after marriage. Because don't forget, listen, listen to these words, so marvelous. In Revelation chapter 22, you get to play a wonderful role. I mean, I mean there's, there's some stuff still out there for you, some service that you're going to do to Christ and, and, and some things you're going to say. But this is so cool. Listen to this. It says, it says um, Jesus is talking. So he's given this whole uh, narrative to John through an angel. John has taken it down in, on Patmos. And, um, and so we get this now, and, and he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. So remember the seven churches, uh, you know, some were unfaithful, some were faithful, and, and some things were wrong, and he said, fix it, and whatever, and, and all that. I sent that, and that was me, and I'm, I'm concerned that you come, and you're a pure bride. Obviously, all these things all play into it. And then he says, I'm the root and the descendant of David. In other words, uh, I'm the source, and, and I have the correct lineage. I'm the rightful king. The bright morning star, Jesus says, I gave you this message. I want you to come. I want you to come. I gave the message to you. Come in. And then verse 17 says, the spirit and the what? Who? We get to say, come. Come. You know, all who come to Christ, none of them will be disappointed. You, you won't be disappointed at the end of your journey, right? If you, if you stick through it to the end, you're going to get there. And not, you're not going to say, and that was a real drag. Man, that was a worth it. Nobody's going to say that right? The spirit and the bride say, Jesus says, come, right? Come. And the, and the spirit and the bride, they get to say, come. And, and then the one who hears says, and, and, and let the one who's thirsty come, and, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come. Because my burden is easy and my yoke is light, right? Beloved, redemption is one big story of the love of God for a sinful, rebellious people out of whom he has redeemed a bride and he expects her to be pure. And so Paul calls the church to that, doesn't he? I, I'm, your, I'm your father in the Lord and I'm holding you for this marvelous ceremony. And that's what I'm worried about. And that's what I'm writing to you today. And so the Lord has appointed faithful pastors and ministers and they're going to be committed to see that happen and be motivated to be instant in season and out. Study the word of God. Be sure they know what it says and give it out so the church can be pure. It's pretty simple to figure that out, isn't it? That's, that's one of the jobs that we do. We see Paul doing that. That becomes that standard by which you can measure truth and falsehood. All right, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you today for a time to come and to be in fellowship. It's such a joy to be together with other believers, like-minded. We desire very much to be the pure bride. We, it is in our mind, if we're redeemed, that we want to do it better, and that's what you want. You want us to let the word dwell us in, the, in us richly with all wisdom. And so, Father, help, it, help us to do that each day, not just on Sunday where we open the word of God and study what the preacher's going to teach on. But for us, that's a corporate worship as a body. But for individuals, we want to be in the word each day. So we know what the holy standard is. We hold it up before us. We have, we have reasons to praise you every single day and to worship you in our own heart because of what you provided for us and things you've done. And we get understanding about the way the world is and how can be fa we can uh, be secure and safe and know that you have all this in your hand. You're working out your own will for your own purposes to bring about the end, as you said, is going to come. And so, Lord, I pray we'll be drawn to your word. Let be then, as we understand what the word says, what it means by what it says, and how it applies to us, that we begin to be more of the pure bride, set aside, set apart uh, for this upcoming ceremony for which we long, and we know Christ longs. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.